Welcome. You're listening to Building the Backend, a podcast for data architects, where we will uncover what's working and what's not across the data landscape. I'm your host, Travis Lawrence. Join me on a journey to understand the best patterns, tools, and frameworks for implementing modern data architectures. Each week, I'll interview data leaders and architects like the Vice President of Engineering at LinkedIn or the founder of Data Kitchen and employees at Microsoft and Google and many other top companies. To start off the new year, I have put together a quick 60-second survey to help me better understand how I can best serve you. Go to buildingthebackend.com slash survey to complete it. And if you do, your next coffee is on me, aka I will email you a Starbucks gift card. If you're hearing this message, then the survey is still live, so act fast and help me improve the podcast. Without further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Hey, Data Nation. I'm really excited for this next interview where we will be talking with Prakakpa Sankar, co-founder of Atlan, a data management tool focusing on the data catalog, governance, and data quality. Welcome to the show, Prakupar. Yeah, uh, really excited to be on. Thanks for having me, Travis. Of course. What led you to start Atlan? Sure. So it's actually a story that's been almost half a decade coming. Prior to this, my co-founder Varun and I, we founded a company called Social Caps, which did a lot of work in the data science for social. And our our model was we were basically the de facto data team for our customers, essentially folks like the United Nations, several large governments, nonprofits like the Gates Foundation. They obviously didn't have data teams at that point or even technology teams. And so we became the end-to-end data team trying to solve problems like national level healthcare and poverty alleviation. How do you impact them through using data science? Uh, That's really where I learned everything that I learned about building and running data teams and how complex and chaotic they can be. Because of the kind of work we were doing, we were dealing with a wide variety and scale of data. At one point, we were processing data for 500 million Indian citizens, billions of pixels of satellite imagery, all sound like really cool projects. And I guess our dream projects for a data practitioner in some ways. But the reality for us, Every day was chaos. Slack channels consistently filled with messages. What does this column name mean? What's the final cleaned version of this data set? And I think as a data leader, I have dealt with it all. I've had cabinet ministers call me at eight in the morning and be like, Prakalpa, the number on this dashboard is broken. And when that happens, there's nothing I could do. So I have to call like my project manager who calls my analyst, who calls my engineer and like this wild goose chase to figure out things are broken. Sat in the top of our terrace in office and cried for three hours because an analyst quit on me one month before a really important project is due. And he's the only one who knows everything about the data. And I'm like, how am I going to deliver this project? So just dealt with all of that chaos, hit a breaking point, realized we couldn't continue to scale like that. The interesting thing about these challenges that we were facing was that they weren't actually technology problems as much as they were human collaboration problems. The unique thing about a data team is just the diversity of stakeholders, right? By nature, data is at this intersection of technical and business, which means that you need Diverse people, analysts, engineers, scientists, business users all need to come together and collaborate effectively, but they all had their own tooling preferences and their own skill sets and the, you know, their own DNA in the way that they worked. And we just couldn't continue to scale like that. And so we actually started an internal project for ourselves called the assembly line project. And we basically got into a room and came up with literally like a five pager on all the things in our data workflow that's broken and started fixing it step by step by building tooling for ourselves. Over a couple of years, made our team about six times more agile. And that's sort of when we, we realized that we'd built tooling that was more powerful than we had earlier intended. And we were like, hey, is there a way we can help data teams around the world with this stuff? And that's basically how Atlan was born. 
Yeah, that's amazing. And when you were building out this initial kind of prototype in-house, was it built on any particular open source technologies or was it all? From- so it depends. Some were based on, so I think a core principle, and actually that's a core principle we take up until today at Atlant, which is that don't build stuff that already exists in the world. And so we very big proponents of open source. Atlant even today is built on, on several open source tools. We contribute back to several key open source projects out there. And so a core philosophy, and it's a lot of ways we were building a product for ourselves. It was never even supposed to be a product that, mm-hmm. that in fact, we actually started trying to buy a solution. So that's a story for another time, but we actually started trying to buy. We didn't even want to build. We did, we actually ran a three month evaluation to try and find the ideal solution. And we couldn't. And that's why we were actually forced to build. And so as much as possible, try to leverage existing open source components and then build for solutions that our data team actually needed internally. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And one of the things I, I think you hit the nail on the head is a lot of times it's not a tool problem. It's the human side and the collaboration among the various stakeholders. Um, what have you seen to help enable that collaboration among that diverse group of data stakeholders. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think the the fundamental difference between our data team compared to most other teams, right, is that in our data team, everybody's diverse. If you think about most other teams, let's pick a sales team. Uh, a sales manager started their career. In most cases, like it's a progressive upward ladder, right? So everybody actually knows what everyone else is doing, which actually creates a ton of transparency and trust inside an organization and a mm-hmm. team, right? Versus in a data team, the unique thing about a data team is that a data team leader is probably never going to know the ins and outs of data engineering, data science, analytics, all the data, all the business problems. Like it, it's inherently a very diverse team that needs to come together. And what that creates, unfortunately, is a lack of transparency and trust. So let's pick that problem when the cabinet minister called me at eight in the morning and said the number on this dashboard is broken. On one shot, like there was no one person who could fix that problem because I had to call my project manager who had to call my analyst and my analyst didn't know how the pipeline actually works. And so she needed to call my data. Data engineer didn't know what the variables actually meant. So he couldn't troubleshoot it himself. So let's, let's talk about that's the collaboration chaos. But the other aspect is the lack of visibility and trust, right? So in some ways, at that moment, I wasn't fully sure personally if my data engineer was messing up or if there was something really wrong with the data or the pipeline, right? Um, And that's the unique challenge that data teams have in terms of collaboration. So I think the hardest thing to do is actually being able to foster trust Trust in each other, as well as trust in the data that they work with to actually create a high quality, effective team. And I think that's really where tooling in this space, tooling to create transparency, visibility, discovery plays a really impact, impactful. Because there are elements of how much time it saves and things like that. And we can go into that. But I think the most important thing is how do you ensure that almost everyone in your team has the context that they need to be able to trust each other and trust the data that they work with. I think that's the, the key to unlocking collaborative chosen teams. Yep. And yeah, I think you, yeah, you win that trust just over the long haul, making, just increasing the accuracy and reducing the failures and kind of building up that trust. Absolutely. Um, uh, and even, I think the, the one core thing that I believe about data is that I think data will always be chaos. You can make it, you can make <laughs> it less chaotic. 
but i don't think the chaos like you'll have new kinds of problems and new kinds of chaos right and so in yeah. some ways i think there's one element of how do you reduce as many failures and how do you improve accuracy and that's where i like things like quality tools and and there's a ton of innovation happening in that space but i think there's another element to it which is transparency and visibility when things fail right and how do you even like for example at that moment if i could have just opened up my a tool and i could be like hey like the number on this dashboard is broken because today the data that your api sends us instead of sending us daily data sent us cumulative data or seems like something broke there it's just going to create like a ton more trust around why things are breaking so i think there there are two elements to it which is how do you progressively move towards reducing the chaos but second how do you create clear communication and visibility uh, to manage the chaos in some ways yeah what are the largest misunderstandings about data governance and just data management overall that you see organizations face yeah i think the one element of traditionally right if you think about a word like data governance i think it it really has like a really bad branding problem in the first place it sounds like a restrictive bureaucratic controlling process and unfortunately the reality is in a lot of in a lot of cases that's actually how it's also been implemented in these large top down sort of ways which have gone in and failed inside organizations and so i think the biggest misunderstanding that people have about data management and data governance is almost as it's this top down process to fix things rather than mm-hmm. it being a conduit to help creating better teams and better data so if you think about fundamentally i think even going back in time like if you read about like the initial fundamentals of data governance it's actually built on very cool principles like it talks about how do you bring people and process together if you really go down to the fundamentals like that's actually what it means it's it's really meant to be a tool to to create collaboration and create create democratization but unfortunately in the last sort of couple of decades it's never been implemented in that way and i think that's become a a huge challenge Mm-hmm. Uh, I think yeah. that's really where principles like data ops, principles like agile, principles like how do you bring an agile culture into the data management ecosystem. I think those are almost like a renaissance of of just data management and data governance, but really fundamentally approaching it from the purpose of the purpose of this is not control. The purpose of this is creating better data teams. The purpose of this is to enable our teams to be able to do more with data. And I think that the more organizations start believing in that and being able to implement that and implement that in an agile manner in a collaborative fashion rather than one top-down data governance team somewhere saying here's how you should think about definitions. I think the more we start we start being able to the more the more agile teams are. like we saw this ourselves as a team ourselves. We and honestly I think at that point I I didn't even know the word data governance existed to be honest like I think back then like we were just like these are the issues with our data team we need to fix it and we made our team six times more agile just by some of these processes like we built India's national data platform which the prime minister himself uses which is really cool but what was really cool about that was it was built by our eight member team in 12 months which is you know the largest project of its kind probably you know the fastest executed as well and we would never have been able to do it if we didn't have the tech tooling in place and the the cultural practices in place to enable that and i think the more and more we're seeing with the modern data stack people starting to implement that that thought process as they think about data and analytics projects yeah no that makes a lot of sense and completely agree yeah that's pretty impressive I guess one theme I do keep hearing throughout all of your responses is that 
to enable collaboration, to enable trust, to deliver quickly is all of that agile problem and just that quick turnaround feedback loop. Um, it just supports the whole data ops, agile governance process. Now, where does Atlin fit in specifically in the modern data architecture? Sure. Yeah. So Atlin typically, we become a collaborative glue layer on top of what is increasingly called the modern data stack. So typically our customers would be leveraging some kind of a modern data warehouse or a modern data lake, which is the, you know, almost a cornerstone of their modern data architecture, right? This is where Snowflake, Glue, Databricks, ecosystems like that. And around that, they're possibly leveraging transformation orchestration tools, right? So DBT, Matillion, Airflow, Astronomer, things like that. A BI tool kind of ecosystem, Looker Mode, Tableau. That broadly tends to be your I think of it as the data stack. And Atlant comes in and builds this collaborative layer, which is almost like the metadata stack on top of your data stack, which is to say the reality is your data stack is going to have anywhere between, even in the smallest teams, like four or five tools, but in in the, in the in larger teams, like sometimes up to 15 to 20 tools in your data stack ecosystem. And so that's where you start having collaboration challenges and tooling challenges and things like that. And I think that's where Atlant becomes that metadata layer on top of your data stack. The kinds of use cases we end up solving for in some ways are right from how do I find the right data set associated with for, for this project? Or what does this column name actually mean? How do I start being able to use it for analysis? A number on this dashboard is broken. I don't know why. I'm making a, cha- a change to my table, my base table. What is this going to do downstream to my dashboards and use cases like impact analysis and root cause analysis and things like that? Data brawls, right? What does annual recurring revenue actually? So a ton of those collaborative flows on top of your base data assets. Data assets could be your tables, dashboards, dbt models, things like that. We build the collaborative flows on top of that. Does that make sense? Yeah. So y'all are ingesting the metadata from all of the various components in the data set. And then with that metadata, you are displaying more of the data lineage, the definitions. You can throw some data quality checks on top of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So the core of the Atlan platform is this concept that we call a data asset profile. So a data asset in our mind is it's not just your tables or your columns or your schemas, right? It's your DPT models. It's your dashboards. It's your, so we ingest that from different toolings in your ecosystem. And around that, we build this layer that we call a profile. Think of a profile like a a GitHub code repo. When you onboard an engineer, you just share a link to a repo, right? It has your code, your documentation, your revisions, everything that you need to actually start making sense of your code. The same concept with say data asset profiles can look different for versus a dashboard, right? But in some ways, like what is that single source of truth that you need about this one single asset? And that single source of truth is that is something that we construct by bringing in a ton of metadata, building a layer of intelligence on top of it through our bots ecosystem to actually help solve for a ton of these problems. And then around that is where our collaboration kicks in, which is where, how do I now quickly open this data asset? How do I reference it in Slack and have a conversation in Slack around it? If I want to request access to this data asset, it should be as simple as just requesting access and someone on Slack approving, rejecting it. And those are where some of those collaboration workflows start kicking in. Awesome. Now, from a data quality perspective, more particularly around metrics and reports, how does Atlan improve that area? Sure. So a couple of things. So 
Built into Atlin, we have what we call profiling checks. We actually leverage, again, uh, behind the scenes, we leverage ecosystems like Great Expectations, Soda, which are like swap out, swap in, swap out for, for our customers in terms of their quality engine that they want to leverage. So we have a profiling ecosystem that auto-generates data quality profiles and tests and, and things like that. Second, we have a framework where we're seeing uh, a lot of the movement of quality checks and unit tests going back into your pipeline process and the way that your pipelines are written itself. However, it's still challenging to make that information consumable to your data consumers in some ways. And so we have native integrations into, again, ecosystems like DBT, Great Expectations, where we can auto pull in these unit tests as well as the status of these unit tests and use it to actually generate your data quality profile, use that to actually create that workflow around is this data asset verified or not? And for example, if your if five out of ten of your checks failed, then you know mark this data asset as having an issue, and then use Lineage to propagate that to your dashboard, right? So those kinds of workflows are basically what we build up in Atom. Okay. Now, let's say for example, we push something to prod, it passed all the unit tests, everything looks good. We get that eight a.m. phone call from an executive that there's an issue on this report or there appears to be an issue. Is Atlin able to kind of, if you were to get that call, you could go look at Atlin and see what components have changed within the lineage of that metric, um, even though if nothing is failing per se? Yeah. Yeah. So typically, for example, the way you would do that is you would go into Atlin, you would search for the report or the, or the dashboard that's broken. On its profile, you would have essentially the lineage graph all the way up to source for that, we, we actually are able to construct like column level lineage. So you're able to see that lineage graph. We have a root cause analysis view. So you can go back in time and see what are like, which assets are impacted. And then each of those assets have their own quality profiles associated with it. So for example, frequency distribution of this particular asset changed, or suddenly this particular asset had, this particular table has twice the number of missing values that mm. it would have otherwise. So. Uh, that layer is essentially something that you can traverse through the graph. And then that, I think that's why the power of bringing lineage together with the data asset profile and your you know quality ecosystem becomes really powerful because then when you have all of this metadata from your different tools in the same space, you're actually able to make some of these analysis, right, on what actually broke uh, or what changed, which can help solve that problem in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. And then who are... I guess first first question, it sounds like Atlin is a very holistic data management platform where it kind of covers a lot of the basis from your catalog to your data quality. It obviously integrates with some open source technologies and it seems pretty extensible. Is it your all-in-one data management tool? Are there gaps where it doesn't meet that need? Yeah. So data management is a really broad term, right? So it could right. mean a ton of things. Uh, I think the best way to think about Atlin is we don't, we're not the right tool to think about making changes in your data. If you think about data management, there are elements of data cleaning, data transformation, ecosystems like that. That's what sort of, in my mind, goes into the data stack. Atlin doesn't touch that. Atlin is a very holistic tool in the metadata ecosystem uh, to enable better collaboration. So the best use cases that we enable are quality, single source of truth, documentation, catalog, discovery. That's the layer that we enable the best. Lineage, of course, like as I as we've talked about in in, in depth, but where I think we're, a, we're we are the most holistic metadata tool available today in the ecosystem. And who are y'all main competitors? Yeah. 
So we typically see a couple of different kinds of tools in the ecosystem. Thankfully, I think 2021 has been the year of innovation for metadata. I've been in this space for like 10 years and I think this is the first time metadata is like, I think, finding its space in the data. But traditional players, right from the days of, this is not a new problem. It existed since the day no. of Informatica back in the 1990s. And so we see like traditional players like Informatica or uh, Calibra, Alesha and kind of players who are, I think, built much more in the legacy ecosystem, takes a while to implement, built much more for the on-prem workspace and tooling. And I think that creates some fundamental challenges, right? Takes a while to set up, million dollar licensing price, but most importantly, you're not able to leverage the fundamental impact that the modern data stack has had, which is compute performances and things like that. So there's a ton you can do with automation today when you're just focusing on your modern data stack platforms, which just wasn't possible on a Teradata or Oracle back then. And so I think... There's that sort of more, what I would call the 1.0, 2.0 generation of metadata management. And then I think if you think about innovation in the last sort of three or four years, almost all your big tech companies couldn't use the, the legacy tools. And so they ended up building internal tooling for themselves, which in the last couple of years, some have started getting open source, right? And so we'd see some open source ecosystems like in a month that would start sort of cropping up. Those are the two kinds of tools that we see mostly in the ecosystem that they come in and compete with us typically. Mm-hmm. And what's the licensing or the cost pricing structure for Atlan? Yeah. So one of our core principles has been to, we believe as a data team ourselves, we wanted to partner with folks that sort of aligned with our value in some ways. And so the biggest challenge that I had back then when I was trying to buy a solution, apart from the fact that none of the solutions would work, and we were using tools like Slack and we were like, okay, this is not the kind of tool that, you know, our, our team would use. Like apart from that was we're looking at six, seven figure licensing fees to begin with 18 month implementation time and on the other hand like we were like we were so used to like AWS we were used to like just get started and scale as you see value and things like that and so that's something that we've tried to bring into the way we think about business and pricing so we're pretty pay as you it's a per user per month kind of pricing model we have a couple of different user types and you can get started really small and then scale as you go and so in, in a lot of ways the way we think about success is like a tool like Atlan is going to be like as a collaboration tool, we're going to be successful when, you know, uh, your users inside the organization are using the product on a daily basis, right? We want to hold ourselves accountable to that and we align ourselves and the value that we, we generate to that metric. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And you already mentioned a couple of open source solutions that integrate or are built on top of Atlan. Can you just list out that list again? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So we leverage a bunch of the Apache ecosystems, Atlas, Ranger, Great Expectations is something we integrate with and a bunch of other layers that we integrate with behind the scenes to essentially create that one end user experience for for a customer to be able to come in and say, I can get started in 30 minutes. And from a unit test perspective, what are you seeing customers, which tooling or framework are you seeing most kind of your traditional ETL integration transformations? What type of unit tests are you seeing created for that or what frameworks do you see work well? I think we're still very early, honestly, in terms of the unit test framework. I can maybe count on my fingers the number of customers who have actually, or the number of folks I've spoken to who actually have a well-done framework for quality. I think it's still very early in, in the, I think the ecosystems that we're seeing the most growth in is, I, I talked about great expectations, great expectations, we're seeing Soda, we're seeing DBT has some capabilities natively. Those are some of the capabilities where or, or things that we're seeing people leverage as they start thinking about unit tests. But I think there is, there's an entire open 
problem around what are the right unit tests and how do you write unit tests and what is the you know how do you do that effectively and and things like that and i think that's uh, that's still a problem that that remains to be solved effectively in the ecosystem mhm yeah it's a difficult problem to solve with i feel like the data side more so than your traditional software development because your test what you're testing for changes based off the data um, so it's a little more complicated exactly. Exactly. So the unique thing about data that I think people don't realize is that with every other ecosystem, like with code, a human creates code, which reduces the variability in a lot of ways. But with data, like humans don't create data, and I think that creates a ton of challenges that are very different from what you would see in a typical software ecosystem or even like a design ecosystem or things like that. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good point. Atlan was recently named by Gartner for active metadata management. Can you describe what is active metadata management? Sure. Yeah. So I think you know the one of the coolest things that happened this year was that traditional metadata management was Gartner used to have a magic quadrant for it, and they actually scrapped it in lieu for essentially what is now emerging as this new category in the space, which is around active metadata. And I think the best way to think about this is is really to just think about the difference between something that was passive and what we need in the future. If you think about traditional tooling in the space, I talked about almost what I call the first gen and second gen tools in the space. The challenge with these tools was. a they in some ways didn't take action right so if you think about a traditional data catalog it would basically just come in and you would create this repo of metadata somewhere in your ecosystem and that's not actually getting used or taking action in a way that you need your system and so i think the one fundamental difference between active metadata is how do you take metadata and make it actually actionable now there are two layers to that one is the collaboration layer which is where i talked about like how do you take this metadata and make it available directly in, like in atlan we talk about this concept of reverse metadata which is how do you when you're in looker and you need to know who the who owns this dashboard how do you know that right there instead of having to go to a separate tool to know it and so there's one element which is the human led aspects of collaboration uh, and action uh, on metadata i think the other aspect of it is actually the operational and the system led stuff so right from things like how do you integrate this into your ci cd pipelines or in an ideal world at some point you can actually take a bunch of this metadata and intelligence on top of your metadata to actually go in automatically curate and tune your data pipelines right and mm-hmm. there is a bunch of that action layers that can start getting created and so i think the one core movement has been from traditional tools to active metadata is how do you go from passive to active metadata management systems and i think the second is how do you not be passive yourself as a tool right i think traditionally these tools very dependent on human led effort to curate and document and and so success of these programs dependent on that whereas today there's actually a ton of automation and intelligence that you can build up on top of the metadata that you're collecting itself to automatically actually create a ton of this uh, this insight and i think that's the second big difference between a traditional passive tool versus an active tool mm-hmm. yeah no thanks for breaking that down what are some of the more difficult to capture metadata across the data stack and i guess what are customers asking for that they're not seeing or just a little bit more difficult to automate or to grab in a active manner sure i think the hardest one is human i think data will always have human context associated with it you will never fully automate everything 
because context is human led you can the same data can be used in different ways the same insight can be inferred in different ways depending on the business context and i i think that's the reality of data in some ways and so i think the the one thing that is the hardest to capture is actually the human led context about data right what are the business use cases that you use this for this field this field is perfectly okay to use when i'm thinking about this business use case but for this other business use case actually you should never use it those kinds of elements of are i think what is the hardest to capture and i think that's where it's really important to build a collaborative a culture of knowledge sharing and a culture of documentation first approaches so that you're not losing this human led context every time somebody leaves the the organization Yeah, definitely. It makes a lot of sense. And it's hard to capture that tribal knowledge, especially if you haven't been doing it from the start and you're looking at a mountain of data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's why, for example, we spend a lot of time thinking about like, how do you integrate some of this into your day-to-day workflow? Because if it's a whole new thing that somebody needs to do, sure, you can do it in mission mode. So exactly like you said, like you go back in time and you you have to fix stuff. And almost every organization has to do it because very few people <laughs> get it right on day zero. But that's the easier problem. Like the mission mode project is actually the easier problem because all it takes is like a project and a project manager and people dedicating time and resources in most cases to do it. I think the harder problem is how do you do this in a continuous manner because the reality is your data is changing, your business is changing and all these things are continually changing, which means that it needs to become a part of your culture and I think that's really why user experience integrating it into the day-to-day workflow of your team, making it fun, making it like giving people wins, like those kinds of things I think are are really critical both in the way that we think about software, which is tool like that we're building as we think about enabling that for end users, but I think also for the companies that we work with and actively thinking about the culture that you want to build in your teams. I guess does that look like the data stakeholders of these various objects whether they're tables or BI reports, you almost have assigned key stakeholders that are it's their responsibility to maintain that context and to keep that up to date. Yeah, I think ownership is important. Ownership is important or assigning experts is important. What you could do is so for example, like you could today you could actually parse through queries and you can say who's using this data the most, right? And and you do know who created the table. And there's information like that doesn't need to be it's hard to get today, but you can actually technically automate that. And technically, like you could actually, as you think about the workflow, when someone runs a query on that data set, you could actually say, hey, could you also help make this reproducible for other folks inside the organization? And, or could you explain, like you just ran a query on this, the column description here is missing. Could you just go in and verify if this is the right thing or the wrong thing? And I think that's really where user flows make such a big difference, which is how do you make this something that is in line to, to what users are doing? Or let's say if someone's already talking on Slack and you're asking a question on Slack uh, and someone's responding, how do you quickly just pin it and make it available in the context that broader data set, data asset has? Right. And in some ways, like, I think these are problems that you see in other worlds, right? If you think about zero inbox principles and superhuman, or you think about linear, or you think about Figma, like there are, I think there, there are lots of principles you can take from other ecosystems to think about what that ideal, how should a, a human, we, we call it humans of data, like as we think about our users, right? How should a human of data work on a daily basis? There's a ton of things that can be micro improvements, but that can lead up to a whole. I think being able to do that can actually help unlock that collective knowledge inside the organization. 
Makes a lot of sense. And yes, definitely not an easy cultural shift to start shifting. There's some good points you brought up. If you're just starting out, let's say right now it's the Wild West and your data landscape like it is for many organizations, which activities should you start to look at first to implement? Whether it's data quality, data catalog, some other data components, I guess. If you're just starting out in an agile fashion, which should you tackle first? Yeah. So I think a couple of things. So the way I would think about this is, honestly, if you're like day zero and you're a new leader in the organization, I am a big believer in starting by prioritizing business problems. Because in some ways, you're actually doing two things as a data leader, right? One is you can't take 18 months to get to business value because if you take 18 months to get to business value, you're probably going to be fired. And then at the same time, if you start with just like project-based approaches to deliver business value, your team is probably taking twice or thrice the amount of time that they're going to take. You have all these trust issues and accuracy issues and things like that. And so the way I would think about it is actually start by prioritizing your top say business projects, like say, these are the three things, like maybe it's your customer 360 algo, maybe it's your recommendation system, like whatever those top two, three things are that I think are, are most important to solve. And then as you do that, I think doing it the right way is critical. So for example, for those three business problems, I would set up the modern data stack. So I would, you know, I would go in and make sure that I'm, I want to do 12 month long migration project to do everything on Snowflake, but I would basically pick up for those few projects that I'm running, I would basically go in and say data ingestion. How do I go in and set up my warehouse? How do I do my quality tests? How do I uh, do transformation on DBT? Or how do I use the best tool for BI? How do I then think about my my consumption layer, which is where it's like cataloging and, and ecosystems like that. So I would actually think about it from that perspective. Luckily, in today's world, most of these tools are actually like pay as you go get started small, right? So you don't right. actually need to make a decision about your enterprise-wide data stack. I would start there. Those would almost be like pilots for also improving the culture of the team and learning quickly uh, about your stack. Uh, I think that would allow you to prove business value, but it would have also allowed you to learn and figure out like what your ideal stack should look like. And that's when maybe three or six months into my job is when I would actually go in and say, now that we've done this and we've proven value, now I want to actually dedicate time and resources to fixing the foundation and running some of those foundational activities to fix the foundation of the data team. Love it. Simple. Focus on the business. <laughs> no need to overcomplicate it. Where do you Focus see the data architecture? Do it the right way. Do it the right way. Yeah, of course. Really quickly, we're running up on time. Where do you see data architecture sitting in the next two to five? I wish I was a seer and I knew the answer to this, but I think anyone who prescribes to know where the data stack is going in the next five years is probably lying <laughs> or is like far above my pay grade in most cases. But I think, honestly, I think we're, we're seeing a ton of in, in the space, which is awesome. I think we will end up seeing more standardization five years from now. I think we're at this point where almost this, where this explosion of tools have happened. I think the data stack is actually starting to get more and more standardized. I think the metadata stack or the control plane layer that I call it is just starting its innovation layer. So I think about three or five years out is when it's going to start getting standardized. I think what we'll end up seeing is we will see more tools built for specific use cases, but better protocols for sharing across these tools. I think what is starting to get created in the org is people are starting to think about, people are starting to realize diversity is real. 
different people will need different kinds of individual tools and niche tools and that's so as long as you have great ways for these tools to intershare and collaborate well effectively and so i think that experience layer and that api layer will start becoming a lot more critical people will start adopting those protocols and hopefully those protocols will actually allow us to innovate faster and for longer uh, in the ecosystem absolutely decoupling the components to make them interchangeable where do you, i guess do you have a favorite data book or resource that you recommend sure so some of my favorite ones there is actually this is a a little less known book but there's i think it's a great book for data leaders who are just starting building their teams it's this book called analyzing the analyzers uh, o'reilly and uh, it basically actually de- it it talks about data people and a confluence of skills in data people like how someone's never a data scientist or a data engineer but is great at visualizing data and figuring out a problem statement and i think that's a great way of thinking about building teams because in my experience i've never found someone who's a 100% data engineer and a 100% business user business analyst so i think it's a great way to think about teams i think someone starting to build out a data driven organization i think there's a book called creating a data driven organization by carl anderson which i think is a great here are the basics implement this in your first 12 months and you're probably going to be in a good place those would be my two go to resources awesome yeah now i got to check out that check out those i have not read those if listeners want to connect with you afterwards where should they go sure uh, i'd love to connect with, with data folks and feel free to ping me for any questions or like to catch up for a call i'm prakalpa on twitter prakalpa on linkedin uh, or you can go check out you know atlin.com www.atlin.com uh, and reach out to us there as well Awesome. Thanks so much Prakapa for coming on the show. I really enjoyed this conversation. Got a lot of good value out of it. So thank you for your time. Yeah. Thanks a lot for having me, Travis. Thanks for listening to Building the Backend. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. If you want to receive the latest data news in your inbox, join the newsletter at buildingthebackend.com. See you next time, Data Nation.